pray. Father, we come to you again asking for your help. It is no less the word of God that we would be gathered in the evening rather than the morning. That there may be fewer here than there were hours ago. No less your word from Second Peter than from Genesis. We need to hear from you. You have a word for us. So I pray that you would give me a humble heart that I might decrease and Christ would increase. And that you would give to each of us ears to hear and the mind to understand, the wills to obey. We would not be hearers only, but doers also of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, There will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why is it that so few Christians are passionate about the very aspect of our faith that the apostles in the Bible encourage in us most? Many of us, perhaps especially if we're young, are eager to change the world. We may be eager to pursue the best for our children and our family. Maybe eager to make a difference in politics or culture. Perhaps simply eager to save for retirement. We have goals, we have aims, we have passions and pursuits. And all of these have their place. But the New Testament spends either no time or relatively little time on any of these. But the New Testament spends a great deal of time exhorting the believer to personal holiness. You've probably heard from me before that line from Robert Murray McShane, what my people need from me most, he said, is my own personal holiness. It has been one of the foundational planks in my understanding and philosophy of ministry. What you need from me most is my own personal holiness. Maybe tied with that, you need me to be faithful in preaching the gospel. But you need me to be with God more than you need me to be with it. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't it by and large Jesus' message about certainly First of all, him and his place, but then after that, what it means to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, to obey the law of Christ, to fulfill all that he has enjoined upon us. Or think about the summer series from the fruit of the spirit or the language in Ephesians and Colossians of putting on and putting off or the exhortations in Hebrews we've already read to strive to enter to that rest. The New Testament is filled with constant exhortations to personal holiness. And yet I fear that many Christians, if they were to 
elucidate their main goals in life or this coming year, to grow in godliness would be well down on the list. There's a mini sermon here at the beginning of Second Peter. That's what we've been looking at for three weeks. We saw in verses three through four, the power for godliness, these precious promises and participating in the divine nature. In verses five through seven, the pattern for godliness that we make an effort to add to our faith these other virtues. And then tonight in verses eight through 11, the premise for godliness, the power, the pattern, and the premise. Or you could think of each of these as answering a question. How? How are we to be godly? And then what? What is the pattern for godliness? And then tonight then is the why. Why ought we to be godly? Three reasons. One, godliness renders you an effective Christian. Two, Godliness makes your election sure. And three, godliness provides an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Number one then, godliness renders you an effective Christian. Look at verse eight. Why is holiness important? We read, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective. So if you are a believer who is growing in all that we saw in verses 5 through 7, faith, virtue, knowledge, steadfastness, godliness, self-control, brotherly affection, and love, if you're increasing, the promise from God is you will not be ineffective. You will not be unfruitful, which means we ought to beware of stagnation in the Christian life. That there's no progress, there's no increase, there's no trajectory. If no one around you, in any of your context of influence, is hearing more of Jesus, being shaped into the likeness of Jesus. In other words, if there is no fruit personally in your life or fruitfulness around you, we at least ought to ask the question if it's because we ourselves are ineffective and unfruitful. Now, when I say beware of stagnation, let me hasten to add, don't just pay attention to your feelings. In fact, oftentimes it's best not to pay attention to your feelings when it comes to adjudicating your personal growth in godliness. Pay attention to your overall character. Notice the list in five through seven says nothing about your temperament, or about the sort of emotional state. We don't ignore those things, but rather it's about your overall character. And don't look at your character in a static way. Look at how you are responding to new pressures and new temptations. Why is that important? Because it may be that you're overly discouraged and you think, I'm not sure if I really feel like I'm holier than I was 10 years ago. But then you look at what's happened in the last 10 years. Oh, yes, I had children. Or perhaps you've had the onset of debilitating illness or suffering. So look, not just is there some sort of straight line or basic upward mobility with godliness. But as different pressures and stresses have come in, marriage reveals certain new sin patterns. 
Children reveal more sin patterns. Sometimes old age exposes different sin patterns. So how are you responding to those? Even if it may feel as if in this season of your life, you're seeing sins you didn't see before, that may actually be part of your growth in godliness. How are you handling new stresses, new temptations? Are you increasing? So beware of stagnation. That's the challenge. But there's also a comfort in this word, increasing. It means beware of perfectionism. I want to read you from an article, and I'm going to read several paragraphs. It's from a number of years ago on this theme of perfectionism. It's from D.A. Carson. I couldn't find it again in a quick Google search, so maybe you can find it, but I'll read some of it for you because I find it so helpful. Maybe you will as well. And it connects with last week's theme. He says, I suspect there is another species of theological perfectionism, though it is never so labeled, that owes no connection to Keswick or Wesley. Remember we talked about that last week, the sort of Keswick higher life theology that says let go and let God and you can be without the the known presence of sin, that sort of perfectionism. Carson says, perhaps I can approach it tangentially. More than 10 years ago, a gifted pastor I know told me that at the age of 50 or so, he was contemplating leaving pastoral ministry. Perhaps he would serve as an administrator in some sort of Christian agency. When I probed, I discovered that his reasoning had little to do with typical burnout, still less with a secretly nurtured sin that was getting the best of him, and certainly not with any disillusionment with the gospel or with the primacy of the local church. His problem, rather, was that he set extraordinarily high standards for himself in sermon preparation. Each of his sermons was a hermeneutical, homiletical gem. Anyone who knows anything about preaching could imagine how much time he devoted to sermon preparation. Yet as his ministry increased, as legitimate demands on his time multiplied, he found himself frustrated because he could not maintain the standards he had set for himself. I told him that most of us would rather that he continue for 20 more years at 80% of his capacity than for six months at 100% of his capacity. Now, just pause right there. And you say, well, that's about preachers and pastoral ministry, but it's about all of us. Aren't there times, seasons in your job as, as, a, as a parent, whatever God has called you to, you feel like, I, I am not doing as well as I could at any of these things. And you feel like if you were to give yourself a grade on your walk with the Lord, C, parenting, C minus, work, you know, B minus, you feel like I'm not doing A plus work in any of this. Now, maybe that means you need to reorder some priorities. Maybe you need to hear that sort of exhortations in this passage. Or maybe what Carson says is a word for each of us. Better to have you at 80% and not drop out of the race than to go 100% and be done in six months or a year. And if that means that the house is not as clean as it should be, or you're not winning Parents of the Year award, or you're not setting any standard for your biographer to write about your prayer life, keep going. Is there some small increase? Carson continues... Part of this pastoral dilemma, he says, can be thought of as a species of over-realized eschatology. 
Not the over-realized eschatology Paul confronts in 1 Corinthians that leads to pride or the foolish over-realized eschatology of health, wealth, and prosperity, but a slightly different kind. It is the kind that knows glorification still lies in the future, but also knows that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That Christians have not only been justified, but powerfully regenerated. That the spirit has been poured upon us. That sin no longer has dominion over us, making every sin a damnable failure, utterly without excuse. Doctrinally, therefore, these believers know that perfection still lies over the horizon experientially. Precisely because they know the kingdom has been inaugurated, they can sink into bleak despair as they confront their own sins. It is not that, objectively speaking, they are worse than other Christians. Far from it. They are among some of the finest Christians I know. Those who criticize them have rarely thought as long and hard about sin and how to overcome it as these brothers and sisters. They remain uncomfortable with their wrestlings because they know they ought to be better. And so he says, perhaps it is unwise to suggest their problem should be thought of as a kind of perfectionism. Certainly it's not the kind you have in some strands of the Wesleyan tradition. Rather, this unhappiness, sometimes descending to despair, is the fruit of frustration that perfection is not achievable. It springs not from generalized aspirations for utopia, but from the biblical declarations of the power of the gospel placed alongside our own shortcomings. It springs from the conviction that granted the power of the gospel, perfection ought to be a lot more attainable than it is. So if last week was an appropriate emphasis from Scripture on make every effort, and we'll see here again, be diligent. Let this word from Carson be a little balm to your soul. As you see there in verse 8, increasing. Increasing is an exhortation, but it's also a comfort. If you're increasing, it means you're not perfect. If you're increasing, it means you haven't arrived. If you're increasing, it means you still have distance to go. We don't have to be perfect, at least not in the sense we often feel it. We don't have to be heroic in every area of virtue. Just increasing, little by little, degree by degree, being transformed into the image of God. So beware of stagnation, but beware of perfection. The if-then sentence is quite simple. If you are growing, you will be kept from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we've seen several times already, knowledge is not the problem. Sometimes you, you see certain Christians and they got so much head knowledge and theology and they're proud. Well, that's not the problem of knowledge. That's the problem of their heart. Knowledge is good. But it must be a knowledge that translates into godly character, not ineffective, not unfruitful. That means don't let your knowledge of Jesus be useless. Don't be an an ugly, barren tree. It's possible to be very smart, to be a good teacher, to have theological orthodoxy down pat. You can have a zeal to confront injustice, a passion to see people come to Christ. But without godliness, you'll be ineffective. I will take in myself and in any young person eager for ministry, or old person for that matter, I will take lots of fruit over lots of gifts any day. Now, gifts can be good too, but people with many gifts and few fruit are very hard to work with. 
those with lots of fruit, whether they have many gifts or not, can serve in amazing ways. I have a a talk that I've given over the years in different places as I speak. When they ask me to speak on connecting to the culture or evangelism or something, it's called Reaching the Next Generation is Harder and Easier Than You Think. Maybe I'll give it to you sometime, but my five points are this. Grab them with passion, win them with love, hold them with holiness, challenge them with truth, and amaze them with God. Five-fold plan for reaching the next generation. Hold them with holiness. By that I mean people will notice if you are different. There are people in your life, you may never meet them till heaven, who, who notice something different about you. Holiness does not guarantee salvation for those we're trying to reach, but it does make it harder for them to jettison the faith. Let your life be an obstacle, not for others to come to Christ, but for others to leave Christ or not to come to Christ. Let your life be a holy dissonance in the lives of skeptics or cynics or unbelievers. A holy dissonance that they say, I don't, I don't like the church, I don't like the Bible, I don't like this Jesus, I don't like what they say about heaven and hell or marriage. But they sure are a very loving family, and I don't quite know what to do with him. He is the best one at work in terms of his faithfulness and his commitment. They are the best neighbors we've ever had. Let your lives of holiness be a holy dissonance. Be an obstacle to turn from Christ, not an obstacle to come to Christ. J.C. Ryle says, I believe there is far more harm done by unholy and inconsistent Christians than we are all aware of. Such men are among Satan's best allies. They pull down by their lives what ministers build up with their lips. They cause the chariot wheels of the gospel to drive heavily. They supply the children of this world with a never-ending excuse for remaining as they are. Isn't that true? Such men are among Satan's best allies. If you want to be an ally of the devil. There's a better way than to go out and tell people to worship the devil. Very few people are going to go with that. Even those who are militantly opposed to the truths of Christianity, a better way to be an ally of the devil is to say one thing with your lips and live quite a different way with your lives and give people all sorts of reasons to say, that's what their Christ looks like? That's what Christianity looks like? Now, to be sure, people will look for hypocrisy. They will overlook the consistency. They will look for reasons to justify their unbelief. But let us not, insofar as God gives us strength and power, be those reasons and those inconsistencies. Years ago, 20 years ago probably, when this book came out about youth ministry, I'll never forget that it cited a study of what was the best predictor of whether young people grew up to live and inherit the faith. And the best predictor, at least this study 20 years ago found, was, was not actually how many retreats they went on. Oh, Stuart would want me to say that when we have retreats, sign up. Or 
how many times they played Chubby Bunny. I don't know if we do play Chubby Bunny around here, how many marshmallows you can stick in your mouth. Uh, it, It wasn't whether they were on the praise team or not. It was quite simply whether they had the presence of a mature Christian adult with a meaningful relationship in their lives. Now, we know, some of us very painfully, you're a mature Christian adult and it didn't, for whatever reason, God hasn't seen fit for it to translate in the lives of your children. So we know it's not an automatic formula. But isn't that the truth? That what young people need most is they need to be surrounded by a network of mature Christian adults so that faith looks normal, so that righteousness looks normal, so that following Jesus looks normal, supernatural, but normal. If you are godly, you will always be relevant. That means whatever age you are, you say, I'm just a kid. What can I do? Or you say, I can barely get out of the house now and and I'm, I'm looking at the, the last 10 years of my life probably. What can I do? If you are godly, you will always be relevant. You don't, you don't have to know what the, the kids are into. I don't know what the kids are into. And I have a bunch of them. And the more you try to pretend you know, the sillier you look. If you're holy, if you're godly, if you walk with Jesus, you will not be ineffective. There is always room for God to keep using anyone of any age who's walking with Jesus. You will not be ineffective or unfruitful. Second, godliness renders you effective, and second, it makes your election sure. These two verses, 9 and 10, are somewhat tricky to untangle. It almost can sound like, does Peter want us to make ourselves elect? How can we do that? Is he saying that we can be carnal Christians? Is he saying that true Christians can actually fall away? Well, I want to suggest there are three different kinds of people referred to in these verses. One, we might call the backslider. Someone who's a true Christian has fallen away for a time, is not growing at the moment, has taken a wrong detour, but can be, according to James, brought back to the path. This person is so nearsighted, he is blind. You see that in verse 9? Blindness in that he's forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So he's become blind. He doesn't remember who he was and who he is. He's like the prodigal son who lived among the pigs and the muck and the mire. And if he would have forgotten to go back into it, no, no, no. Your father has welcomed you home. Why do you want to eat with the pigs He's blind. He's been cleansed. It's like debt. Why do you want to get into that financial hole again? You've just been lifted out of it. Someone gave you a tremendous gift, paid off all your debts, and now you're going to go spend all of it? Dig down again? Why do that? Or dirt. Why do you want to get into the mud again when you've just gotten clean? Calvin says, for the blood of Christ has not become a washing bath to us that it may be fouled by our filth. You don't want to get dirty again? Don't be blind. Every parent knows this. When you have young children, you do the the bath time, and they're clean, and they smell good, and you put on your pajamas, and then you leave a door open, or they pry it open, and 
Next thing you know, where are they? Not our household, just meta, you know, metaphorically happens in some households perhaps. And they're out in the yard, they're out in the garage, and they're bare feet. And what do you say? You just had a bath. You are to be hermetically sealed until bedtime. You can go nowhere, touch nothing, eat nothing, move nowhere. So they go out and they got chocolate on their face and they're walking around and you say, I have to bathe you again. It's a sort of sentiment here. You've already been cleaned. You've already been forgiven. You've already been changed. Why do you want to go back to that life? Don't you want to make your calling and election sure? So one sort of person in mind is this backslider. Pull them back from the path. The second is the apostate. The opposite of entrance into the heavenly kingdom. Verse 11, there will be richly provided for you an entrance. Now, listen carefully. Yes, the Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints. The Bible teaches that once you are justified, you cannot be unjustified. And at the same time, the Bible has a number of examples of people who are in the covenant community in some external visible way who make some signs of allegiance to Christ and in the end prove not to be genuine. 1 John 2, those who seem to be of us but did not remain with us and therefore proved to have never been of us. Or the warnings in Hebrews of those who have tasted of heavenly things, who have had their eyes enlightened. It's thinking of people who have had some taste of Christianity. They've had some external connection. Maybe they even made some profession of faith. They didn't finish the race. Peter says, if you are lacking in these qualities, if you've given up on them, you should be afraid. A habitual disinterest and disregard for godliness is a warning sign that you may not know God. Let me say that again. A habitual disinterest and disregard for godliness is a sign that you may not know God. So there's a warning here. But that warning needs to be connected with this third category, the elect, the backslider, the apostate, the elect. See, one of the ways in which God means to cause his saints to persevere is by the use of warnings. So don't say, well, reformed preachers don't use warnings. Well, the Bible has lots of warnings because one of the ways that God causes his elect to finish the race is with warnings that say, if you don't finish the race, you will not receive your eternal reward. And in the elect, in those truly justified and regenerated, they hear the voice of God speaking to them and say, oh Lord, forgive me, get me back on the path, help me to finish the race. The warnings are used for the perseverance of the saints. Make Every effort we read in verse 5. Here we see something similar. Verse 10, brothers. Okay, so he's writing to those who are of the household of faith. He's not writing to people outside the covenant community to earn their way. He's saying, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. We are never told to pry into the recesses of God's mind to determine if we are elect. It's very bad spirituality. You will make yourself miserable. How do I, how do I know? 
Well, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the hidden things of God are to remain hidden, but the things that he's revealed are to us and to our children forever. You can't pry into the eternal recesses of God's decree. What he tells you is much more straightforward. Do you see fruit? Be all the more diligent. Now, this is not the only means of our assurance. Sometimes we need just the objective truth and promise of the gospel. We need the witness of the Holy Spirit. But all of the Reformed confessions say the third means of our assurance is to see the growth of godly character in our lives. Now, often you need to do this not by yourself, but in community. Assurance is a community project. You're often going to be the worst person to judge your own progress. Because the closer you get to God, the more you see your sin. No, we need one another to say, brother, sister, I know it's been a bad month. I know it's been a hard year, but I see fruit in your life. I see growth. Bad reprobate trees bear bad God-forsaken fruit. Good elect trees bear good spirit-filled fruit. We are meant to find means of grace in our lives. And let me remind you that the qualities we read in verses 5, 6, and 7 are not mainly about a bunch of things that you have to do, but they are about the sort of person you are. So I don't know if you're like this. I quickly feel overwhelmed when holiness feels like a to-do list. And I think I'm already maxed out on my to-do list. If your definition of holiness requires 36 hours in your day, well, of course, you're never going to feel like you're making progress in godliness. And so we often measure our holiness by how are my quiet times? Are they long enough? Was my family worship been consistent enough? Have I had people over for dinner? Have I shared my faith? How is my prayer life? And of course, we, we know the value in all of these things. But that's not what verses 5, 6, and 7 tell us. It doesn't tell us you have just more things to do. And somehow you're not a Christian if you can't figure out time management. The list is about who you are. Of course, who you are spills over into what you do. But I just don't want us to panic when we think, I don't have time to be a Christian. Godliness is not something you put on the schedule for next Tuesday. It's how you relate to people all the time. It's how you relate to God every day. Do you persevere? Are you kind? Do you love? Are you self-controlled? Are you growing in these virtues? Godliness makes your election sure. And then finally, godliness provides an entrance into the eternal kingdom. That's verse 11. The false teachers, as we'll come to later in the epistle, did not make their calling and election sure. And so they were not being provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Look at chapter 2. False prophets arose. There will be false teachers among you who will bring in destructive heresies, denying the master. Verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality, will blaspheme. Their condemnation, verse 3, from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. So there are some, these false teachers, who do not receive entrance into the heavenly kingdom. Or look at chapter 2, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them 
than the first. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from it. There we have the apostate, those who have some external connection to Christ, some visible connection to the covenant community, not truly justified, not truly regenerated, but some connection who prove to not have a real connection. So this is not an idle promise. This is not a pointless promise. This is for those, the truly elect, who persevere and therefore will have an entrance provided into the eternal kingdom. To enter into this holy place, the heavenly kingdom, you must have been fitted for it in some way. Those engaged in, listen to all these words, persistent, defiant, unrepentant wickedness. I didn't say those who ever sin or those who ever fail. Those engaged in persistent, defiant, unrepented wickedness will not be welcomed into heaven. No matter what they confess or what church they went to, they will be like those that Jesus says, I never knew you. First Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Galatians 5, the works of the flesh are evident. I warned you that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Revelation 21, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. You've heard it before. We are justified by faith alone. The faith that justifies will never be alone. The root of justification is faith alone. And that root will produce fruit. The fruit is not the root, but the fruit comes from the root. So the justification is by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. The warnings come later in 2 Peter. We will see them in many messages to come. But here we end on verse 11, more hope-filled. This is an exhortation to pursue holiness and expect a warm welcome into the kingdom that is to come. A number of years ago, we were living in a different place and we had friends across the street and they weren't Christians. They knew I was a pastor. They knew we were Christians and eh, sort of tolerated it, it seemed to me. And I forget if it was maybe Trisha's grandmother who passed away. And when I told them, one of them said in a way that sounded a little sneering and rolling of the eyes, oh, I bet she, she went home, didn't she? They were sort of mimicking the Christian language that they had heard before. And I said, yes, as a matter of fact, she did. That is what we believe about heaven. It's not just a euphemism for everyone who dies. You, you go to a better place. No, you don't always. For the Christian, the promise is you go to a better place. You go home. If you've ever been on a long journey or you've ever had to live out of the country, or if you've ever just returned to the place of your roots and filled with, with nostalgia, you know the power of coming home. Richly rewarded this entrance into a heavenly kingdom. I love this language here. Richly provided an entrance. Think about it. When you die in the Lord, 
They roll out the red carpet. I don't know if it's one of the angels or the saints that have gone before, Jesus himself. There's some kind of red carpet, and they strike up the band, and they release the balloons and the confetti and the ticker tape parade to richly provide you an entrance. Why? You're home. Welcome home. That's why we pursue godliness. Not because godliness is is rewarded with heaven. But as we pursue this godliness, we can be confident that we are on the road, Mark, to heaven. Do you hear the difference? Godliness is not climbing up the ladder into heaven. Godliness are are the, the signposts, the mile markers. We are on the right road. We are moving in the right direction. And so we must be fitted for heaven. Again, J.C. Ryle says, I know not what others may think, but to me it does seem clear that heaven would be a miserable place to an unholy man. It cannot be otherwise. People may say in a vague way they hope to go to heaven, but they do not consider what they say. There must be a certain meetness for the inheritance of the saints and lights. Our hearts must be somewhat in tune. To reach the holiday of glory, we must pass through the training school of grace. He says, if you are not heavenly minded here, why would you want to be in heaven forever? He says, where all is holy. If you have no passion for holiness here, why would you want an eternity of holiness? If you do not thrill to dwell with saints below, why would you want to live forever with saints above? If your heart does not beat to worship Christ here, why would you want to go to the place where you do it for all eternity? Ryle says we must be heavenly minded and have heavenly tastes in this life that now is or else we shall never find ourselves in heaven in the life to come. Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. The Bible is the best book as a physician of our souls. Because the Bible has so many medicines for our motivation. And it's good counselors who have many medicines. Sometimes people want to, Christians, well-meaning, they want to cram everything into one motivation. Your one motivation to be holy is to work out your justification. Or the only motivation they know is to scare the literal hell out of you. Well, the Bible has all sorts of medicines Sometimes you need one or the other, and sometimes you need to lay out all of your pills that you might be motivated. You have permission to take all of the spiritual medicine you need. So perhaps the medicine you need is to say, I want to be an effective and fruitful Christian. And God says, pursue godliness. Or maybe the medicine is you want assurance that you are elect And God says, pursue godliness. Or maybe the medicine is you want confidence of that warm welcome on the other side of glory. And God says, pursue godliness. Be diligent. Make every effort. Christ has given us all we need for life and godliness. Godliness is not just for God's glory. It is for your good. Make every effort. And God will give you the power. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, give us the medicine we need, each one here.
for whatever spiritual sickness we are liable to, wherever we have grown weak and our knees are trembling, our arms are drooping, strengthen us. For you have given us the power, you have given us the pattern, you have given us the premise. Help us to walk in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.